Uh, it's great to see you at this EU Festival public meeting, and thanks for dragging yourselves away from Twitter to be here today. Um, if you haven't heard, Malcolm Turnbull's just announced that he's calling a party room meeting tomorrow, and Rod Brun, the Prime Minister, so we may have a new Prime Minister tomorrow, um, which is a bit exciting. Uh, the first time this happened in my lifetime was 1992, when Bob Hawke was pushed out by Paul Keating. Uh, I was seven years old. I remember watching it on TV. This felt like a big deal. In 92, there were only five TV stations and there was no internet. And the news cut in on Sesame Street and this felt like a big deal because that rarely happened. And uh, as the news rolled on and it became clear that Bob Hawke, the only Prime Minister I'd ever known, was going to no longer be Prime Minister, I remember bursting into, into tears, actually. Um, crying and crying and crying. It was all very sad. Uh, as the Prime Minister, Bob Hawke, got on TV and he cried as well because this job which he'd spent years longing for and then spent a long time exercising was taken away from him. He lost the power he had spent years trying to get. Uh, for me, that, that shock for me was channeled by my parents into a letter to the former Prime Minister. And because he had a bit of time on his hands, he wrote back. And this is now a prized family heirloom. That's Bob Hawke's letter back to me. Uh, he wrote some nice things. He said, Dear Matthew, thank you very much for your kind letter of support. I'll certainly miss being Prime Minister, but at the moment I'm enjoying being able to spend a little more time with my family. It's a little awkward, actually, because he left his wife not long after that. Um, but anyway, um, for a long time, because of this, I actually wanted to be Prime Minister. I was that kid in primary school who could name every Australian Prime Minister in order and still can if you want to challenge me. Um, despite Hawke's exit, at age seven, there was an idealism to the nature of politics and the use of power, and it was a far cry from the last 10 years or the last 10 minutes in Australian politics with the rise and fall of different leaders. But the older you get, and maybe you realise this, have realised this quicker than I did, the more you realise that there are more Frank Underwoods out there in the world than Jen Bartlett's. It's not that power in itself is bad. In fact, any serious Christian reflection on power would need to acknowledge that power and authority are part of the way that the world is made. Power is inherent to our nature as human beings and is part and parcel of our human experience. In fact, an absence of power is an abuse of power. You see it in countries where government collapses. You witness it in classrooms where the teacher can't manage behaviour. People end up being hurt by a lack of authority. And so I don't want to be naive about authority as we consider power this afternoon. And yet, as Lord Acton observed, power has a tendency to corrupt, whether that be in the highest offices in the land or in our own homes. Power can be abused by the trader or official who leverages some inside knowledge to their advantage. Or, I don't know, do you have these at the con group assignments? <laughs> that student in the, in the group assignment who's always argumentative and domineering, who always has to be the leader or the family member who manipulates or uses violence to get what they want from the rest of the family. And this has been really driven home in Australia, Australia over the last decade through royal commissions exposing 
harrowing and widespread abuse of power by institutions like churches and schools and governments, community groups, <coughs> banks, and the whole financial sector. And for many of us here today, this is hardly a surprise. Not only may we have experienced abuses of power personally, we can um, name it because we're philosophically and intellectually attuned to it. Maybe you've studied a bit of Nietzsche while you've been here at university, and his understanding of the will to power, that ambition and achievement are what define human behavior. Maybe you're really into Wagner's ring, ring cycle. Um, it's Nietzsche's philosophy about power that kind of underrides the ring cycle. Maybe you've been reading French philosopher Foucault in your spare time, as you do, <laughs> digging into his description of power. Uh, for Foucault, human history is nothing but, a, and I call it, a series of subjugations. For Foucault, he takes um, Nietzsche's idea of the will to power and he turns it into this transcendental quality that power is the reason behind everything in the world. There is nothing but power. Power is everywhere. And by that, Foucault doesn't mean something that's good or beneficial or positive. For Foucault, all power is an act of violence. All history can be deconstructed into a web of discrete acts of control and domination over one another's body and behavior, in which we're all complicit and all victims, because power through Foucault isn't just what governments or states exercise, but it's exercised by parents on their children, teachers on their students, employers on their employees, pastors on their parishioners. It's what you exercise on your friends. It's what you exercise, Foucault says, on the students that you teach guitar to. You, you exercise it on the people that you love, even on your barista. What you chose to wear this morning was an act of power, forced on you by the fashion trends of our culture. Power is everywhere. It's inescapable, because according to Foucault, power, dominating, subjugating, violent power, is the most true thing in the world. And all of this leaves us, I think, with a suspicion of power. Even if you haven't been dipping into continental philosophy, the cultural milieu that we inhabit in the 21st century is one of suspicion. We see power everywhere. We see people everywhere acting out of their own self-interest, feathering their own nests, dominating others. And we're ready to call BS on power everywhere. Which kind of makes for a fascinating cultural incong incongruity. Because despite our deeply, deeply held suspicion about power, we still actually long for it. People actually want to be prime minister. And I suspect that for some of us, our degrees at university are a pathway to the power that we desire. Not just the power that's found in wielding legitimate authority, but the power that comes from being respected or influential, being esteemed by your peers, from being rich or making a name for yourself. The power that comes from being an authority in the academy, in law, in finance, in teaching or in music, you know, you say the name Richard Togniti and people who know nothing about music know his name because he's an authority. A good friend of mine took a graduate job as an engineer at a multinational car company and within a, within a month of starting on his job, 
so this is about three months after he finished his degree, he found something that saved the company about $200 million. It kept the company in business for another 10 years. They got to stay in this major town in rural Victoria, employing hundreds and hundreds of people. His stocks at the company shot right up in terms of reputation and influence. And that might be the kind of power that you're longing for as well. Maybe you can see it already when you do group assignments. Do you always need to get your own way with other people? Or maybe you see it in the way that you relate to your friends and your loved ones. And especially, I think, for people in their late teens and early 20s, you can see it in the way that we tend to use sex. Are you using sex as a way to have power over others, to feel like you're in control? If anything, the Me Too movement has reminded us of how one of God's good gifts like sex can be abused by man's quest for, for power. Do people around you feel used by you? I think all of this begs the question, can power be something that you long for without hurting people? Can you use power without dominating others? Our instinct, our instinct in the 21st century says no. That power is always violent, always inherently dominating. But at the heart of the Christian account of reality is an account of power being used in the service of others. If you are longing for power, here is how power can be used in selfless, non-destructive ways. Here's how we can find true power. And we see it in the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, which was just read for us. It's a famous story, one which has inspired art and music down the centuries. But at the heart of it is a clash about what power actually is. And John 18, if you have it open, opens with Jesus and 11 of his disciples withdrawing to a space that they were very familiar with. And it's this intimacy with Jesus and his movements that Judas uses to his own advantage. He knows where Jesus will be, and he arrives with an overwhelming show of force to ensure that his betrayal will be as successful as possible. Judas has brought with him, we read, a detachment of soldiers together with officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now, the officials here are likely to be the temple guards charged with preserving peace at the Jewish temple at night. But the soldiers, they're most likely a Roman cohort, based on the word that John uses, made up of somewhere between 600 to 1,000 men. And the temple guards, whilst they're typically unarmed, they're armed tonight. They're not taking any chances. After all, Jesus had spoken about starting a new kingdom. And so it's quite a dramatic scene if you can imagine it in your mind. Up to a thousand men moving out of the city in the middle of the night, carrying torches and lanterns to light the cool, dark air. They're armed, ready to fight, ready to search and hunt for any insurgents hiding in the shadowy corners of this olive grove. And suddenly, out of the gloom of the night, they emerge many more men than Jesus and his disciples could have dealt with. Their weapons glinting in the dark. Have you noticed where Judas is in all of this? He's quite visibly switched sides, hasn't he? In verse 5 we read that he was standing there with the soldiers and the temple guards. 
It's a highly visible betrayal of Jesus. And in verse 3, we read that Judas has actually guided the soldiers to this place. Although, guide is probably too soft a translation for the word here. Uh, Judas has actually been the one who's led them here. He's led the soldiers. He's their leader. He's not just their guide. He's the one who's taken the initiative here to forcibly arrest Jesus with a sizable number of soldiers. Judas is their leader. What on earth is he thinking? He seems to have been expecting some sort of armed resistance, otherwise he and his squad wouldn't come out in this fashion. But for three years, he has been by Jesus' side, participating in his ministry, observing his care and kindness towards the weak and the marginalised. He's seen Jesus calm storms with a word. He's been there for all of this, playing a pretty key part by carrying the disciples' money. And maybe it's that fear of influence that he's gained. He's worried about losing that influence. Whatever his motivation, Judas gathers all the firepower he can muster to arrest Jesus. This is not like Dutton's attempt to overthrow Turnbull on Tuesday. This is not going to fail. He's in control of the situation. He's in command of an army. He's presented to us as the one who has the power here. And this is the thing about power. Power can be alluring. It's electrifying. It can be as intoxicating as the allure of sex and money. And that's partly why so many of us long for it. I'm the eldest of three boys, and I experienced for years the thrill of being the boss when mum and dad weren't around. There's something exhilarating about being in control. Now that I'm in charge, I can finally do the things that I want done the way I want them done. It doesn't threaten my comfort or approval. I can watch what I want to on TV. I'm the one who gets to play GoldenEye on the 64. I'm in control. Power lets us call the shots. And if you long for power, you'll want power over others. That's just how it works. You'll long for influence or recognition. You might, well, this can take different forms for each one of us, I think. You might want a bigger salary, not because of the money it provides, but because of the status the money can offer. You might stand for school captain or for the SRC, not because of the opportunity to serve, but because of the respect and the esteem such a role entitles you to. You might diligently perform your duties at home, cleaning the bathroom and keeping your room clean, all for the admiration of your family or housemates. If you're doing it just for the power or the influence, though, eventually the people around you will feel used because they're just a means to the end of the influence that you so desperately, desperately crave. That's why politics has for a long time now been described as a greasy pole. Not only is it difficult to climb, but it's made all the more so by the betrayals and the compromises you have to cut along the way to get to the top. All the ministers this week have come out and said they're not they're supporting Malcolm Turnbull and then turned around and stabbed him in the back. Here is Judas at the top of one of these poles. He's leading an army. This is real, real control and authority he has here. But he's betraying his friend and compromising the last three years of his life. And as we notice this, that this scene in John 18 begins to look familiar. 
We're in a garden, which is a really significant motif in the Bible. And earlier in the Bible story, back in Genesis, we find another garden and another betrayal. There's another story of someone searching in a garden in the evening. Uh, You may know in the Garden of Eden, God went looking for the man and the woman he had created. And yet there was no answer. The man and the woman had hidden. Something had happened. Their friendship had suddenly soured. Love, which had been so visibly present there, love ever beautiful and fragile, had been trampled upon. Love had been betrayed in a quest for knowledge and power. And fast forward now to back to John 18, and here we are again in a garden, only this time the roles have been reversed. Sinful men, violent men, men with weapons, come to the garden in the dark, looking for someone. And that someone, we're told by John, was the father's only son. Turns out they were looking for God, they were searching for God, and didn't even know it. But it's at this point that Jesus shows us what true power looks like. Because unlike Adam in the Garden of Eden, Jesus doesn't hide. He doesn't try to shift the blame. He doesn't try to fight his way out. He doesn't need to do any of that. He says his father has given him a cup to drink, and he's going to drink it. He's no shirker. Where Adam hid in a corner of the garden, hoping to remain unseen, Jesus steps forward. The light of the world stands before those who in their darkness have come with torches and lanterns. The light shines in the darkness here, and the darkness is not going to extinguish it. Who are you looking for, he asks. Who are you looking for? Here is the one who made the world, who finally tuned the number of stars in the sky, the distance of the earth from the sun, the number of cells in your body, handing himself over. He makes himself weak and vulnerable, powerless, you might even say pathetic. And yet John is at pains to point out that at this moment, it's Jesus and not Judas, who is in control. It's Jesus who has the authority here, because this is what real power looks like, to not be used in self-preservation, but in the service of others. Uh, John tells us that Jesus knew all that was about to happen to him, and in verse 9, he says that Jesus acts in order to fulfill the word that he had spoken, that I did not lose a single one of whom you gave me. The image that's used here is kind of like a shepherd willingly laying down his life for the sheep. It's a sacrifice for his disciples' freedom. That's his fierce protection of his own that's on display here. And in verse 8, if you are looking for me, let these men go. It's more of a command than anything else. It's not just a suggestion. In the Greek, it's an imperative. It's the kind of thing you put three exclamation marks behind. Jesus is telling them what to do. Because he's the one who's in control. The scene becomes all the more extraordinary when you look at verse 6. Because Jesus again takes the initiative. He asks them who are they looking for. And Jesus, when he tells them that it's him, he uses an answer that that is simple and yet shocking. I am he is what he says. Which in a setting, of course, 
kind of means nothing more than that's me or I'm the one. But throughout their history, the Jews had known of God as the great I am, the God who is. And with the confrontation between God and Adam back in Eden hanging in the air here, I think there's no doubt what Jesus wants us to hear in this moment. The one standing before you in the garden, glimpsed in the flickering torch light, is the I am, God in the flesh. And so it's no wonder that Judas and his soldiers step backwards and fall to the ground. Their stumbling, whether voluntary or involuntary, is what people do when they come face to face with God in the Bible. Even these men, with treachery and murderous intent in their hearts, cannot escape the reality of who is standing before them. And this is where we begin to see the sharp contrast in power. Because they've come with swords and clubs and treat Jesus like he's just another guerrilla leader, a revolutionary. And even Peter, it seems, was expecting Jesus to fight. But what Judas and even Peter don't understand is that Jesus is leading a revolution. But it's a different kind of revolution, a much greater one than history has ever seen. Uh, What happens in the kingdoms of this world is that revolutions basically keep the same old thing on top. Money and power and politics always stay at the top of the list. There might be a little fine-tuning of the same old order, a little reshuffling of the chairs, changing who sits where. Every revolution brings in a new set of people into power, and then the next one brings in a different set of people into power. But it's not really a revolution. It's still based on the same old, old, old ideas about money and power and politics. Jesus isn't interested in putting into place a new set of people. He's not interested in shuffling the chairs around. He's not interested in keeping things the way they are. He's bringing about a new kind of administration, one that uses power in a totally different way. Which is why he's not the kind of revolutionary that you can stop with swords. He's not about the sword at all. He doesn't live and die by it. He's not Judas, using the coercive nature of power to get what he wants. He's not Peter, merging the power of the world with the sword on top, with his own kind of theological religious position. Jesus is totally different. And what he says to Judas and to Peter and to all of us, actually, is that true power is not like anything you have seen in this world. It's completely different. This is how I'm going to change things. I'm going to put others ahead of myself. I'm going to love my enemies. I'm going to serve and sacrifice for others. I'm not going to repay evil with evil. Uh, Rather than an ugly display of power, brandished for self-serving ends, here we see how power and authority can be used not just in the sake of others, but might even be just beautiful. And this is what Foucault and Nietzsche and Wagner, Wagner and others never understood about power. Power is everywhere, yes. It's part of the human experience, yes. But power is not the heart of reality. Power is not the most true thing in the world. Love is. Love is. God's love is the ultimate reality. 
It's Jesus' love that allows him to go and let go of his security, his reputation, his power. It's Jesus' love that allows him to be taken away from the garden, demeaned, dominated, abused, and condemned. Jesus' death on the cross wasn't an unexpected accident. He allowed himself to suffer the full force of all of our abuse of power for the way that we love influence more than we love others. For all those times we've taken advantage of others, he was betrayed, arrested, and died on the cross to show how vast and deep God's love is. That even when we live for our own self-interest, Jesus selflessly gave his life for us. And in the process, he turned the cross, this symbol of Roman imperial power and might, this symbol of gruesome, torturous death, becomes a symbol of love and life. Are you longing for power? Do you want power? Here is how you can find power that's not selfish and not even self-destructive. Here is power that won't seek strife or domination. And when you use power like this, power can be used in the service of others rather than in their subjugation. Power will seek the good of the other, even at the cost of yourself. Love-driven power like this won't be so tight grip when it comes to power, but will seek to share power and build relationships, even among groups that are alienated from one another. Rather than stoking strife, love-driven power like this will empower others, no matter their ethnicity or economic background or their gender. But Jesus is not just our model here for how we should use power. And if you think that Jesus is only an example of what selfless use of power looks like, then your longing for power will never be satisfied. If you just try to copy Jesus' example without knowing or without experiencing his love for you, you'll still be afraid. You'll be afraid of losing your power and you'll try to cling to it, desperately, desperately hold on to it. You'll be terrified of being humiliated when you lose power. You'll do what you can to keep power. But if you're longing for power, for real power, the way to have that longing met is to let the one who made himself nothing, who let go of power, to let him serve you. I find this personally incredibly challenging because the natural inclination of my heart is to exult in the triumph of my will over others. I take what I want, and that's all that really matters. Almost by default, I'm self-conceited and rude. I don't care about the feelings of others. I'm a jerk. But when you see Jesus there, drinking the very dregs of his Father's cup, using his power not for his own sake, or for the sake of power itself, but for the sake of others, you can't help but let Jesus invert the natural inclination of your heart. Jesus uses, used his power not at the expense of his friends, not even at the expense of his enemies, but for them. He gave up his power, he died for his enemies. He came in to this world, our world which is scarred by the abuse and corruption of authority, and was subjugated and dominated himself, dying a death he didn't deserve but we did, 
He died for all those times we've used power for ourselves at the cost of others. He humbled himself. He let go of power. He took that which was ours so that we could have that which is his, the love and power of God. And as you see Jesus hanging there on the cross, that you see not just a different paradigm of power, but the only way to experience true power for yourself. What was truly revolutionary about Jesus was that he used power by laying it down. He was never more in control than when he wasn't in control because he entrusted himself to his Father. And as we admit our own sin, our own need, our own powerlessness and brokenness, and by casting ourselves on his mercy, that we become secure in God's love and empowered in a way that does not lead us to oppress others. This is the way to have true power. Uh, If you've come along today with a friend, it's really great that you're here. And maybe the best thing that you can keep doing after today would be to keep investigating what Jesus has to say about power. Ask your friend maybe to read one of the four accounts of Jesus' life with you and test whether Jesus really does use power selflessly, lovingly. Uh, If you've come along on your own today, the EU would really love to give you a Bible for free. Uh, Riley will buy you one. (laughs) And EU would love to find someone to read the Bible with you. Uh, If you leave a comment on euconnect.me, the EU will be able to make that happen. And it might just be that as we've read John 18 and considered power today, as you've reflected on your own longings as well, that you recognize that there's something that is wrong and needs to change. So on the screen, we're going to see a a prayer. It's a prayer that we've been using throughout the festival at main campus. And there's nothing particularly special about this prayer, except that this is what it means to be a Christian. It means coming to God, knowing that all our deepest longings are satisfied in him alone. It's a prayer that asks God to forgive us, to change us, which are things which God actually just really loves to give us for free. And so as we finish today, uh, let me lead us in prayer. And you're welcome to say it quietly as well inside your own mind. Let's pray together. Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me, that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new new life. Please forgive me and change me, that I, I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen.